Hi, I'm Kieran Cook, and welcome to At Source Podcast, a place where natural health and well-being are at the forefront of the conversation. Gain useful insights direct from the source from doctors, industry experts, wellness advocates, and everything in between. This is a place for busy people who want to get to the core of health and wellness with information about the latest health advances and trends. In this series, we talk with and learn from inspiring leaders from all walks of life, touching on important topics that will help answer some of the key questions about natural health, well-being, fitness, and all things direct from the source. Annette Kamasuli has worked as a sleep consultant for over 20 years. She is trained and qualified in the National Health Service, NHS in the UK, and set up and ran a specialist sleep clinic, having gained a wealth of knowledge and expertise when it comes to tackling sleep issues in babies and toddlers. Her background lies in child development and psychology, nutrition and maternal mental health. Since 2011, she runs her own consultancy, Serene Sleep, helping Kiwi families achieve better sleep. A warm welcome to you, Annette, or shall I say a cosy welcome. I know you're a child sleep expert, but before we dive into this, I did want to have a chat to you about sleep in general. It's just great to have you here on the At Source podcast. So let's start off the definition of sleep on Google. What Google says is it's a condition of body and mind that typically recurs for several hours every night, in which the nervous system is relatively inactive, the eyes closed, the postural muscles relaxed, and consciousness practically suspended. It sounds somewhat involuntary. But of course, we all know that it's actually not. Sleep for a lot of people can be extremely challenging. At what stage do people come to you to ask for help? Oh, thank you for having me um, today to for the interview, Karen. Yes, So I like to sort of say that sleep is like a nutrient. We all need it to survive. Um, It's probably one of the reasons why it's used as a form of torture, because without it, we can't survive. And so when parents come to me and reach out for help is, is when pretty much they can't continue any longer. And it's starting to take a massive toll on their lives. And one of the interesting things um, that I notice in my work and have noticed over the last 20 years is the significant impact that sleep deprivation has on mental health. Um, We all know that sleep is mentally restorative. And if your sleep is being significantly interrupted by a baby or a toddler waking up, then of course your quality of sleep is going to be significantly affected. And so I would say that's the point that parents reach out. It's their mental health that's been affected and also physical well-being, just not being able to cope. So we really do know how important sleep is for our little ones and for parents as well. That's right. I, I have heard in, a, in a, a previous conversation about sleep, although not such a focused conversation on sleep in the previous one, that sleep was king and nutrition was king. And so you've sort of really nicely sort of uh, wrapped that up. Of course, it sounds like ambulance at the bottom of the cliff stuff, <laughs> that you are getting calls when things are really desperate. And that in itself must be quite challenging because it's not like... Uh, what you do, and look, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's not like what you do is sort of necessarily proactive work. It's more reactive work. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And you're right about the ambulance at the bottom of the hill. Although in some ways it's quite good when parents do reach that point and pick up the phone and ask for my help. It's because they've realised that it, they can't function anymore. And so when they're in that position and they've recognised that the toll it's having on their mental well-being and their and their physical well-being, that they're then in a position to make changes. They've come to the conclusion that, okay, this is not sustainable. We cannot function anymore like this, trying to juggle work, trying to juggle the children. It's taking this huge toll. So now's the time. So actually, um, when I do work with a parent, the first thing I say to them before I even start launching into how I can help is what motivated you to ask for help? And I might get a few sentences of I'm really tired or I might get a 20 minute kind of offloading of this is taking its toll. And, and in a sense, I'm like, OK, well, this is great because you've recognised that you can't continue. So now you're ready to take action. So that's kind of when, what parents are like when they reach out for support. 
That's right. And so you've got a captive audience. You've got uh, people that are probably more receptive to change because, as you said, they're recognizing it in themselves. They can't find the right solution or balance for the family. And of course, uh, you know, a baby or a toddler that's not sleeping has impact for the whole family. It's uh, not just mum and dad, it's often brothers and sisters too, right? Absolutely. It is literally the whole family. So it's impacting dad at work and mum at work as she's working as well. And older siblings are missing out on mum time if perhaps mum's kind of um, held hostage in the baby's bedroom and can't escape. Then, of course, yes, it's going to have that flow on effect, um, de- most mm. definitely. It's really specific what you do, the work that you're doing in a sense with sleep because um, look, you know, I know that at the stage of life that I'm at and I speak to, you know, my peers that sleep, you know, in that 50 plus kind of zone is challenging. And as we age, I hear a lot of women talking about how hard sleep is with the onset of menopause and so forth. I mean, you're working right back at infancy and we'll touch on some of the, the sort of various parenting styles and stages and phases of, yes. of parenting, um, maybe a little later. But I'm just interested in this work that you're doing, what attracted you to working just specifically with babies and perhaps toddlers? Yes. So um, I worked in the NHS uh, many moons ago in the UK um, before moving to New Zealand. And um, I was 25 then, (laughs) so a long time ago. And um, I didn't have any children of my own. And I worked in the community, in a community setting as a community nursery nurse, which is very similar to a Karatani nurse here in New Zealand. And I worked with a team of health visitors, again, similar to Plunkett. And I was given the amazing opportunity back then to open up a uh, fully funded by the NHS sleep clinic for the community I worked in. So we identified at the time that there are more and more parents coming forward that were struggling with their little one's sleep. And I think as well at the time, more women were going back to work. And so they were realizing that they had to do something about these sleepless nights. And so, um, yeah, and so I was given this amazing opportunity, set up a sleep clinic. It was run on a Friday afternoon, done through self-referral or referral from GP or the health Uh visitor. And of course, as you can imagine, a service like that that was free to the community, um, I was inundated with referrals. And I just found it fascinating that by just changing a parent's response, changing routines, changing perceptions about children sleeping, that I could literally change someone's life. And it was so empowering and so rewarding Mm. to A, A, be in that position, to be able to make a difference. And so, yeah, and I did that for 13 years. And then 10 years ago, we made the big life-changing decision to move to New Zealand. My husband is Samoan and he wanted to raise our children um, in New Zealand. And so, yeah, so we arrived. I had two young children at the time and I thought, what am I going to do with my with my time once I got them settled into school and my knowledge. And so that's where Serene Sleep was born. I set up my own consulting business. And basically provided the same amount of support and the same um, advice and expertise that I did in the UK. Because let's face it, sleep problems are the same worldwide. Nothing's changed. And so that's that's where my 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 work's come into. So, and I have to say, it probably is one of the most rewarding jobs in the world to walk into a home where parents are on their knees and they're telling me their story. And I'm thinking at the back of my head, I can change this for you. I can make a difference. And sometimes it's simple things that you'll change. It's not necessarily having a complete overhaul. It's just making adjustments that are going to be tangible to the child and also um, make sense for the family. Um, And so, yeah, so I just am so passionate about making a difference and being able to help parents. Mm. It's really interesting to hear about your work uh, with NHS, the National Health Service back in the UK. And uh, I do, I do wonder if what you what you did when you started here was quite brave, because I imagine you would have had a lot more sort of financial resource and collegial support and infrastructure around what you were doing back in the UK than perhaps you had when you first started here in New Zealand. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it was very daunting because there was a lot of competition out there as well. So I was um, 
a new, I guess, um, Kid British on the lady. Block. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And is they're like, well, are we going to trust this woman? Where's she come from? What's her background and what's her knowledge? And so I started off very much word of mouth and pretty much still do. Um, and yeah, and just just continued offering that support to parents mm. and using my my knowledge and, and training because I worked in such a diverse community um, in the UK. And of course, you've got, like you say, the buffer of the NHS to provide um, the necessary training. I was, again, very fortunate. I was able to 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 um, go to re- relatively um, lots of um, training courses um, that I was put on. Also sat in on other sleep clinics that were established and got some insight as well. But but most of it's come from experience and just mm. working with thousands of families over the years and just really fine tuning my expertise. Yeah. Mm. So I'm, a, I'm of the generation where I know what a Keratani nurse brings to the table. Um, because I had two kids and I had Keratani help at home. Yes. So I'm just interested, um, obviously, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this this wave, this Keratani wave was pretty prevalent in the 70s, 70s, 1980s. Um, would that be right? That sort of era when parental yes. self-help books were first published in the 70s. And if you think about that, it wasn't that long ago. So it must have been quite transformative in the 70s um just how you know like an awakening and a real education around how to deal with some of these challenging issues with with infants so was your experience uh at the NHS did it did it mirror Karatani thinking or was it different I would say it was different. Um, so my, I, I believe in the New Zealand Karatani nurses are more hands-on going into the homes and kind of not taking over the role of mother, but kind of stepping in and supporting. Whereas mine is more educating parents. So I don't right. actually do hands-on settling. So my job is to empower okay. the parents to make the changes because I believe if the parents are making the changes, that the child is more likely to respond. Whereas if I went into a home, took over bedtime and did some modelling for the parents, well, when I leave, then the parents, their children are going to resort back to the old habits. And so it's really important that the parents make those changes, but also then they, they sense the changes and they feel that a sense of achievement. Or well, we made those changes to bedtime. We changed our perce- perspective on bedtime and we're feeling that shift. We're feeling those um, changes and obviously the sure. benefiting from the sleep. It's a confidence thing, right? Absolutely. And I, I, I did feel uh, pretty uh, like uh, number two, I guess, in that relationship with sleep and feeding um, because, as you said, the Karatani nurses come in and they do take over. Yes. Um, I, I personally didn't mind that because I was sort of at my wit's end. But Absolutely. But I do, I do hear what you're saying. Um, and, of course, you know, sleep issues. I, I had sleep issues with my first child right up until he was about eight. Right. So he used to come and stand outside, you know, our bedroom door in the wee hours of the morning yes. <laughs> until he was about eight. So I always joke and say, I never got a good night's sleep with my my kid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, number two was difficult, uh, likes to be awake at 4 a.m. every morning. But Oh, goodness. But, but the number one likes to be, you know, awake every night until he was eight. Um, so if we just sort of move on and, you know, want to understand, I want to understand the stages of sleep, you know, what happens to the body and the mind at each stage? Because I know with babies, for example, they don't have the same REM sleep as um, as adults. Uh, rapid eye movements, yes. uh, and that's to do with the way that they assimilate the world. So maybe just in the context of infancy, it would be interesting to understand those stages a little bit more. Yes. So there are four stages of sleep. There's the first stage, which is when we're getting drowsy, sleep pressure's building, our eyelids are dropping and we're entering sleep. And we normally do that for about 10 or 15 minutes. Then we go into um, stage two sleep, where it's slightly more deeper sleep. Then we hit um, deep sleep, which is probably the most important part of sleep. And then we go into dream sleep. Um, And so Baby sleep is different um, until around about four months. Now, around four months, babies go through a maturation phase, um, which is a biological change, which is going from newborn sleep into adult sleep. And that's a permanent change around four months, which means babies are going through sleep cycles. So sleep cycles of about 45 minutes in the day for day naps and about an hour and a half to two hours overnight. And so the two most important parts of sleep are dream sleep, 
and deep sleep. Because during deep sleep, lots of things happen to our body. So tissue repair, muscle repair, our heart rates drop, our bodies start to cool, our immune systems work most effectively. And also with dream sleep, dream sleep equally important because it's mentally restorative. So without enough dream sleep over time, it is going to make us feel more anxious and more overwhelmed. And so up until, yeah, about four months, babies tend to sleep sleep in longer stints or longer stretches. But around four months, they do enter that maturation phase and they, their sleep cycles change and then they move into adult sleep. It's really interesting. I mean, you, you know, you think about that at four months, that still seems incredibly early for the body to do that sort of reset. Yes. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Around the dream sleep, a um, couple of things. Um, I mean, adults sleep talk, you know, they make noises when they sleep. Do infants have the same, like, inclination or propensity? Because I do believe that's familial. But making noises in sleep can be linked, you know, as a familial thing. But do babies make noises or, or when they sleep? They might be talking, but do they make sounds? They do make sounds, but that wouldn't be related to dreaming. That normally comes later on, sort of two and a half, three, where children starting to have dreams or vivid dreams. So normally the noises that baby makes is because they're transitioning through sleep cycles. So they're, they're known as brief arousal. So when a baby um, comes out of deep sleep or dream sleep and they're entering that brief arousal stage or entering light sleep, they often twitch, change position, maybe murmur. And perhaps if they've learned to vocalise, that's the point that they'll do a bit of jabbering away for 30 seconds to a minute and then return back to sleep. So yes, babies can be very noisy um, during the mm. night. And it's interesting that you mentioned that that dream state and that visualisation and that dream state, you know, happens more in toddler years. Uh, and in terms of dreams, if we're on this topic, do you think there's truth in our dreams? I mean, they do say that the subconscious mind is constantly storing information and sleep is the mind's way of communicating um, with, with, with you. Does having a bad dream, you know, actually mean that there's something bad? I would say something bad, but certainly um, if you've got an event coming up, you might see that event uh, sort of being played out through your dreams. Um, and I wouldn't say it's anything to be concerned about, but perhaps if you've been through maybe trauma or something's happened during the day, um, then you're more likely to see that played out during um, your night sleep. But often it gets very distorted through dreams. So I wouldn't say it's anything necessary to be kind of looking into it in more detail. But of course, if parents are experiencing nightmares for prolonged periods of time, then it may be that something else is going on or lurking yeah. behind the scenes. But yeah, and, and we all dream in different, you know, rates. Some of us will have lots and lots of dreams and some of us may not dream, wake up and not remember any dreams. So yes. Mm. That's right. And I have spoken to people about this because I do know people that have reoccurring types of dreams. It could be that they're in a a car crash or an aeroplane crash or they all their teeth are falling out. And there yes. seems to be these sort of patterns around dreams uh, for some people. And, and then I hear other people saying, oh, I just don't dream at all. I just, I yes. never dream at all. Yes. So yeah, it's an interesting one. And I'm sure it's just to do with mental, you know, neurological activity oh, and anxiety too. Anxiety definitely. would have a huge part to play in yes. all of this. I would yeah. say those those types of dreams would, would be more frequent if you're going through a stressful time, changing jobs, things are going on at home, then absolutely I would say that would be quite commonplace. Mm. And not not to mention a pandemic. <laughs> the people well, are probably indeed. <laughs> We're probably all dreams are probably <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Alive and well right now. Absolutely. Um, okay. So let, let, let's just sort of understand the, the discrete differences between baby sleep and how that differs to children and adults. And you have touched and we've talked about the 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 REM sleep cycle, um, but there are sort of conditional things that facilitate better sleep for babies uh, to sort of support, I guess, some of the differences between babies, toddlers, and then as they move into teenage years and then into adulthood, uh, like like just a little bit of research I've done, a cooler room, a dark room, things Absolutely. that would help to facilitate uh, a slightly more enduring sleep. Absolutely. And I think um, you know, these days we live in a very kind of uh, fast moving, busy, stimulating world where we've got technology around us, screens, etc. And so we kind of forget that we need to have a little bit of time, a little bit of preparation before we go into sleep. And that's the same for babies and toddlers as well. We need to give them prior warning that sleep is coming and set the scene for sleep. Now, babies and children, as babies as young as 12 weeks, can respond really well to cues and rituals. In fact, babies 
feel much more secure when their day is predictable. And so my recommendations to parents is to think about what happens prior to sleep. And you want to make sleep um, predictable to your baby. And so just five minutes before you put your baby down or your toddler to sleep, you want to follow the same ritual for sleep. And if you think about us adults, we have rituals for sleep. We probably aren't even aware of it, but we have a shower. We perhaps do a bit of reading before bed, have a hot drink, turn the light off. We follow a ritual. If someone was to whisk you from the living room, you're watching TV and that you're sent to bed straight away, you'll be feeling a bit lost because you'll think, well, I haven't followed my usual rituals. I haven't locked the door and let the cat out and switched the lights off and had a shower. You'd feel robbed. And it's the same for babies and toddlers. They need to be given prior warning and they need to be shown that sleep's coming. And I think that's a really important element and also setting the scene. So like you mentioned, making sure the environment is conducive to sleep. So there's no stimulation. There's no bright night lights in the room. It's nice and dark. It's cool. It's not too hot. And appropriate bedding as well. So the child's not oh, too hot or cold, etc. And then just having those little rituals, whether it's story time, a cuddle, singing a favourite song, having um, that sort of calm time. Again, doesn't have to be lengthy, but just five minutes before um, sleep time. And it's amazing after three or four days of following rituals for sleep, babies start to interpret what's happening. And a lot of families um, I work with um, will say after about three to four days when they're zipping their little one up in their sleeping bag, pulling the curtains, they start yawning. They start rubbing their eyes because they know what's happening. Their bodies are then primed for sleep. So rituals really help. Mm, you've explained that really well. So you're thinking and saying here that three to four days can almost reset uh, the clock around Absolutely. This yeah, you can start yeah. to make tangible changes. Absolutely. Mm. Well, that's pretty encouraging for, for parents that are sort of feeling stressed. Do you do you think in this sort of stage of, of intensive parenting that we're in at the moment, you know, baby video monitors and, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the rituals, I guess, and the tools that we have to raise infants, it's a bit overcooked. Absolutely. Um, and I'm quite passionate on the topic of baby monitors. Um, so, yes. So the, the problem we are facing right now, or I'm facing right now, is the technology behind video monitors is quite incredible, so advanced that it's actually causing to more alarm and unnecessary worry for parents. Because the latest technology now, and obviously I'm seeing these on a daily basis as I go into homes, is they now have motion sensors and sound sensors. Mm. And of course, what happens is parents are now being alerted to every time the baby rouses, changes position, or makes a sound. And of course, those types of monitors, it amplifies sounds. And we all know that babies... (laughs) have always woken in the night at those brief arousals that we talked about. Um, Change position, sit up. We do it as adults. We change position. We might check the time. Mm. We might pop to the toilet. We might Mm. grab a glass of water, etc. And And it's okay. And it's it's, okay. It's okay. And it's biologically normal. It's what babies, what we've all done. And so it's completely normal. But if you're already sleep deprived and you're a little bit anxious because you're experiencing sleep deprivation and your monitor is saying, oh gosh, baby Johnny's awake. And you're looking and you're then going, well, what do I do? Do The the screen's alerting me to his wakefulness. Do I need to go in? And actually what the baby's doing is just navigating a sleep cycle and changing position and finding his way back to sleep. And if you go in and interrupt that, then that baby is never going to learn how to figure it out by themselves. That's right. I mean, I can imagine, you know, these days, we had sound monitors back in my day, but I can imagine with video monitoring, it must be pinging all the time with sound and movement and, Absolutely. you know, my goodness. Yeah, and, and I mean, can... that must breed tons of anxiety in parents, right? Absolutely. And a lot of the latest models can be synced to your phone. Dad can watch it from his office. He can see baby on his device. And so we tend to then just be overanalyzing normal sleep arousals. Um, and yeah, and it's causing more distress. In fact, I was in a home only last week working with a family 
they, the, the monitor was on the coffee table. I'm chatting to mum. I can see her focus is on the screen more than me. And we're chatting away. And she said, hang on a minute. Um, the baby's waking up. I need to go and get him. And I just said, hang on, let's have a look. I can't hear the baby. So she showed me the screen and baby was stirring, changing position, wasn't distressed, wasn't crying. The baby was just navigating a sleep cycle, waking mm. up, etc. And I said to her, just leave the baby. You don't need to go in. And sure enough, 15 minutes later, after a bit of rolling around, finger sucking, the baby went back to sleep. And I always say to parents now, if you didn't have the screen on, would you have known that that had happened? And often the answer is no. And so I say, you know, you have a maternal um, compass for a reason, and that is to listen for your baby and you will hear your baby's cries and you will know when they're hungry. Mm. But, but relying on a, a gadget... <laughs> That is so, um, the technology is so advanced. You finely know, tuned, yeah, to So everything. finely tuned, absolutely, that you're going mm. to not then use your own maternal compass and you're going to rely on on the screen. So, yeah, definitely, mm. it's definitely a concern. Mm. Mm. And it is, it's different. It's a, it's a, it's a very different conversation for, for mums today, actually. Yes. I mean, it is more, more challenging. So I, I did notice that you offer a variety of packages um, at, at, the, um, at the clinic and some of these are sort of like lightning packages with a 30-minute consults for sort of tips and problem solving over the phone. And some of them are in, in the home um, yes. and some of them at you know, Zoom, which would be tremendously helpful right now with, yes, um, indeed. with the pandemic that we're with, this wave of Omicron. But, I, Omicron, but I'm just interested in what you find most effective and what's, what you're seeing trending across the work that you're doing. Are people you know, feeling light touch about this or do they really need you in the home to, to affect change? Yeah, so the most popular package is the home console. I think parents want to meet with me face-to-face -face, and I, I want to meet with them as well. And often face-to-face -face, parents share a lot more. So there's a lot of kind of offloading, talking about, you know, why they've reached out for help. And that's something that I, I touch on first. But before we dive into the sleep, we look at, okay, so why am I here today? What made you um, reach, pick up, pick up the phone and ask for help and talk around those emotions? Because it's really important for parents to recognise where they're at. And also we can revisit that several weeks down the line and go, OK, well, this is what we talked about when I came to see you. Do you remember you were finding it really hard to cope? You weren't able to get up in the mornings. Um, you were feeling anxious, tearful during the day. Hubby was asleep on the sofa, was affecting his job. But now look where you are. Look how far you've come. And so I often revisit those kind of pain points, so to speak, and say to parents, this is where you were two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And look how far you've come. Um, mm. So most parents do um, prefer the more kind of comprehensive approach or comprehensive mm. package. And what parents value the most is a follow-up support, knowing that I'm going to be checking in on a regular basis to see how they're doing and give them the chance to ask me any questions, to kind of talk about any hurdles that may have cropped up, which is, of course is normal with any sleep journey. There's going to be some some changes, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, perhaps the, the, the child's learned to stand up or crawl or teeth have come or they've got sick. And of course, those are going to slow the progress down. But having that accountability, I guess, me holding their hand through that journey and through those changes and celebrating that the wins, because often when you're really bogged down and you're really sleep deprived, you can't see the progress as much. Whereas if I'm saying, oh my gosh, that was an incredible change last night. You know, he slept six hours rather than waking every two hours. That's a massive improvement. And just, yeah, I guess recognizing those changes and sharing them mm. with the parents as well. Mm. That's right. And it's like you said, it's not a one-stop shot anyway. It is, it is a journey. And so those 30-minute lightning uh, talks over the phone are probably useful once that initial uh, sort of benchmarks, if you say, sleep benchmarks yes. being sorted and then you can sort of go back in and there might be a few things that pop up that just need consolidating, right? But you, yes. couldn't, you couldn't solve the problem in, in a 30-minute phone call. No, absolutely. So those are most popular for parents that are perhaps going back to work and they're navigating daycare and want some tips on how that transition is going to look. 
Perhaps mm. they're going um, on holiday. And interestingly, interestingly, because the borders are opening up, I'm getting a lot of phone calls around long haul flights. So people are already booking flights for Interesting. April. When yes. we can travel, how am I going to travel long haul with my toddler or my baby? How's that going to look? And so that's been a popular request. And just in the last week now, just doing those, mm. those phone calls. Um, so yeah, Interesting so they, shift. Mm. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So with um, Serene Sleep, you're um, obviously consulting locally, but you also consult uh, globally. I imagine like you're getting calls from the UK, say, or... Absolutely. Yes. Um, so a lot of Zoom calls to obviously parents overseas or, or families elsewhere in New Zealand. Um, yeah. So um, as I said before, you know, sleep problems are the same all over the world. There's no change. <laughs> so I'm um, just offering the same advice. Yeah, absolutely. They are. They are. They are universal. Uh, this one might be a bit of an obvious question for you, but, you know, it is crazy how sleep deprived people actually are. And, and you're probably a little more tuned into sort of seeing that in infants and adults. Um, probably people aren't as tuned in around, you know, around that fact. And they don't recognize that half their problems are sort of down to the fact that they're not getting enough hours. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm interested in, in how we can sort of reframe sleep as uh, being absolutely critical for us and how we can identify if we are sleep deprived. How can yes. we just be more knowing in this arena? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, a lot of parents don't realise how sleep deprived they are or were until they get sleep. So a lot of the parents that I work with when we're coming up to the end of their um, follow-up support period, they'll say, oh my goodness, the change is significant. I don't know how I actually survived because it's been so long that they've been robbed of decent restorative sleep. But I guess from my perspective and what I've seen over the years, the one main thing about sleep deprivation is mental health. The impact is significant for a lot of parents. And it does depend on the parent. I have to say some some parents can tolerate sleep deprivation more than others, um, and others are more sensitive, sensitive to it. Um, but one of the main things is anxiety and a sense of overwhelm. And that's, I would say, 70% of parents reach out because they've reached that point of overwhelm. And we know that dream sleep in particular is mentally restorative. And so without having enough dream sleep and also deep sleep, we're going to, it's going to affect our mental health. And we know that adults tend to dream more in the, the later part of the night, sort of 2, 3 a.m. onwards. And of course, we know that that's when babies are more likely to be waking. And that's because there's a drop in melatonin levels. And so parents are missing out on dream sleep, also missing out on deep restorative sleep where we, our bodies heal. And so th that feeling of overwhelm, anxiety, um, bursting into tears was the smallest thing. Um, and that's mm. why they're reaching out for help. And so it's, it's mental health. And particularly this in these days, the climate we're living in at the moment with, with the global pandemic and parents trying to juggle working from home. In fact, another reason why I, I, my services, I, I guess, have been in more demand is you've got both parents trying to work from home. They're wanting to utilise the child's day nap as a time to get on with doing emails and the evenings, a lot of tag teaming with parents. Now, if you've got a child that baby or toddler that isn't napping particularly well in the day or mum's having to be in the bedroom for the um, whole time the child's asleep or the evenings that the parents um, settling for prolonged periods of time, there's no time for them to do any work. And mm -hmm. so parents are saying, you know, I need that time. I need to have my evening so I can work. I can pay the bills. Um, That's modern day parenting sort of on steroids, really. Because absolutely. you've got the pandemic layer on top of, you know, what, what we know as economic anxiety, time poor parents. Absolutely. Uh, usually mums working, it would be pretty unusual, you know, at some point for, for mums to tap out and not have day jobs. So absolutely. it is a tougher, a tougher uh, parenting arena, I think, now yeah. than ever. Absolutely. Yeah. And gone are the days of nine to five working. Um, mm. And I guess in some ways it's great that the parents have that flexibility that they can work in the evenings or, you know, during lunchtime when the baby's napping. But if you're not having sleep, the pressure um, is incredible. Um, it's mm. really tough. And, you know, cost of living is going up. You know, it's, right. it's a luxury to have a one parent working these days. We have both parents are working. 
um, or have to what? Pay the mortgage. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Just back on this interesting point that you made just in our previous conversation about hours of sleep and how some people have more sensitivity. I think that was a word you used to lack of sleep. Some people are fine on five. Some people need eight. Uh, What's all that about? What do you think? It's a good question. So I think that will be down to how much restorative sleep they're having. So if you're having five hours of deep, consolidated, uninterrupted sleep, and that's the key, the uninterrupted sleep, then you probably could survive. Um, And you might be one of those people, if you're a five or six hour um, night sleep a night, you probably hit the pillow, go to sleep, stay asleep and wake up fully refreshed. But with a parent, if it's five hours of broken sleep, then that looks very different. Um, Because what's happening is if they're being woken up every 90 minutes, as an example, or maybe every 45 minutes in some cases, then they're not going to be able to have deep sleep or dream sleep. And so the difference between a five-hour broken light sleep and a five-hour consolidated sleep is very different. And there are some people that can just put their head on the pillow, they're out straight away. Out cold, yeah. Out cold, nothing wakes them, and then they wake up fully refreshed. um, I hate that. I'm so jealous of people like that. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm one of those people that struggles to go to sleep, and then when I am asleep, I'm fine. But that that just immediate switch off, I'm just so jealous jealous around that. Dr. Google. So Google must be uh, an interesting tool for you to navigate because, uh, you know, it sort of... um, can make somebody feel like they're an expert on everything. And I think too, you know, we, we probably have, you know, less guilt before the internet. The internet does sort of uh, introduce a raft of complexities. Are you finding yes. that the internet in general provides some really conflictual advice and it's difficult to undo some of that? Yes, absolutely. So I do get parents come to me and if I'm giving out any specific advice, whether it's on the length of a day nap or whether it's a sleep environment. For example, you know, some people will say, well, why are you suggesting that we close the curtains and have the room dark during the day? I've just read on the internet that that's, should, that's not the case. And so that absolutely does happen. So I, I have to sort of say to parents, well, look, this is my experience. This is what I have found works to be really well. And Let's try and optimise your child's sleep potential by, you know, following this, che- this checklist. Um, if you find in a month or two, two time that you'd rather not shut the curtains, and that's fine. But let's start off by really ticking every box and optimising your child's sleep potential and setting them up for sleep. So, yeah, there often is conflict. Um, mm. But I always come back to um, what motivated you to ask for help? Why Why are you making this step? What What is it that you want to change? And then getting them to sort of trust in my advice, you know, let, let, I'm going to hold your hand through this journey, trust in the advice that I'm giving you and trust that it will work um, and try not to be conflicted with what else is out there in the way of information. It's a very difficult sphere because I do it distinctly is. remember, I mean, most of my sort of <laughs> early infancy years have gone into a blur, thank God. But yes. um, I, do, I do sort of remember uh, having particular issues around sleep and nutrition, just feeding in general. And I had a couple of what were sort of deemed to be experts in at the time. And I had sort of reached an end point with the first cons- the consult and then had a second consult. And, and, and there'll be listeners going, nodding to this and saying they've sort of <laughs> tested and tried more than one too because one didn't stick. You know, and I do think for parents that trust factor and just finding the right person at the right time when you're at the right level of receptivity, has to be sort of co-factored as well. Um, because yes. I don't know that there is one road, right, that leads to Rome. I mean, we we know that there's varying thoughts around how to settle babies, whether it's back patting or dummies or baby on the side or white noise. And so that must be challenging for you as a consultant because there isn't one way, is there? I mean, what might work for one family and one baby surely couldn't be applied to all? Um, no, it's definitely not one one sort of rule fits all. But the one thing I would say is when if you're wanting to change your baby or your child's sleeping habits, consistency is the absolute key. Now, whether that's you're choosing to co-sleep, you're choosing to rock your baby to sleep, and you're wanting to move away from that, if you're changing your baby's perception of sleep and you're yeah, reducing your physical contact 
whatever you whatever changes you make, you need to be consistent. Now, the vast majority of parents I work with, that's what I'm up against is that they haven't been consistent for whatever mm. reason. Life's pressure, mm. you know, life pressures, etc. But um, what, moving forward, that's the one element that I will stick to, and it's the consistency. And babies respond really well to consistency mm. and predictability. It's how they learn. Um, so yes, that would be my kind of ad- advice. So you can choose different routes to go down Excellent. with changing. Op- yes, but it's that consistent, predictable. Um, reassuring approach that is absolute key. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great answer. I mean, for me, that sort of really resonates. That whatever it is that you apply yourself to, just roll it out and yeah, make it make it a routine. So, uh, adults are needing that same routine conditioning. For example, if they wanted to improve their sleep, do adults need that same sort of stickability and consistency around preparation for sleep? Yeah. So. Um, it's interesting because when I work with a family and they see the results of their consistency with their own children, they, they, they start to then think about their own sleep habits. And it's amazing that when, I, when I'm working with a family, particularly get towards the end of their sleep journey and we're sort of doing a bit of a sign off, they're, they're starting to say, oh, me and my partner are now having a bit of a routine that we, mm. you know, get the kids to bed. We enjoy a meal together. We perhaps watch a movie. I'm reading a book more because the baby's perhaps moved into its own room and they can have the light on. And they're just having their own, finding their own rhythm. And, and also mm. because they've, they're trusting that it works and they know that having that kind of, yeah, predictability to the end of the day is just helping everybody. And so it's amazing that flow on effect that it has. Mm. Did you nail the sleep for your three kids? Or was it harder being close to home? Um, it was, yeah, interesting. I mean, I think I was blessed. My first daughter was very, very easygoing. Um, I did, I did practice what I preached. I have to say, um, I did start off with routines. She was very much an experiment in a sense because I tried things out with her um, that obviously worked. Um, my second um, baby or son was he? He was plagued with um, ear infections, and so we the first year he was awake a lot because he I hadn't realised he was suffering from um, reoccurring ear infections, which obviously mm. added to the sleep deprivation. And then I was blessed with a third who was a good sleeper, but there were times when they didn't sleep for whatever reason, illness, um, and it was awful. I don't cope well without sleep. I'm, I just have to ask my husband. <laughs> I'm an emotional mess. So in a sense, having my own three children has really empowered me because I've tasted what sick deprivation feels like. Yeah. I, I know. And it kind of inspires me to just be, you know, I guess moving forward, just be even more passionate about my job and that that message of being really consistent and the sleep will happen and um, how important it is, how important it is for your mental health. I can't stress that enough, particularly right now. Um, and another thing to also touch on, which I've noticed, particularly in the last five years of working in New Zealand, is the lack of village support that parents have. One of the questions I ask in my sleep questionnaire is, do you have access to family support? And I, I um, specify you know, grandparents living nearby who can pop in to help, you know, fold the washing, take over bath time. 42% say no. So 42% of mothers I'm working with tick, they do not have access to family support. Mm. which is really important. You know, we're meant to raise, we're not meant to raise our babies in isolation. We're meant to raise them with support, with extended family around us. Mm. But the, the world we're living in, that's changed that. Um, you know, the age of retirement is increasing. So grandparents aren't around, they're still working. Good point. And they, yeah. and they can't help. Interestingly, since the pandemic in the last two years, grandparents are selling up, moving out of Auckland. So grandparents are now an hour and a half away and pop down once a month. So just a real shift in in that kind of or lack of village support. So that's another thing that parents are now um, mm. facing. Yeah. Mm. Are you seeing any direct links to uh, like sleep deprivation in infants uh, from mums that are drinking coffee or just having any particular sort of lifestyle, making lifestyle choices that um, maybe wouldn't sort of support uh, sleep and a settled baby? Um, I think, well, that would sort of go with, with or tie in with breastfeeding mothers. But I would say most aren't are choosing not to um, 
you know, drink too much coffee or caffeine drinks just because they're so anxious as about their sleep anyway, or the baby's sleep, that they'll okay. do everything possible. Um, but interestingly, um, a lot of parents that I work with <clears throat> that are sleep deprived are telling me that they're making the wrong choices when it comes to food. They're going for the sugary drinks, they're going for the chocolate, um, the packet of crisps because... Yeah. They're so tired. Like I just want something yeah. comforting uh, to pick eat. Pick me up. Pick me up. They need uh, that. Yeah, they're wanting. Yeah. So yeah. So instead of looking for this, yes, food. So sort of salty foods, things that we crave when we are feeling depleted, um, as opposed to you know finding it maybe a natural solution to sustained all day energy. Uh, so there would be a bit of education in that space. I mean, I'm I'm a little curious about this intensive parenting phase that we're in and. You know, mums are sort of told to don't don't eat this, don't drink coffee because it's going to harm the baby. Sugar-free birthday cakes, uh, exclusive breastfeeding, baby video monitors. It's all very sort of helicopter intensive and heavy duty, you know. Yes. And I do sort of wonder if this breeds in a generation of you know anxiety layers that didn't sort of exist when when kids essentially you know grew up as children and went outside and played and yes um I don't know things just don't seem as simple anymore they're certainly not as simple you're quite right and I think that's the access to information that parents have these days um and the expectation that they should be out doing swimming and yoga and and um, baby massage classes and all the rest there's definitely that expectation as well and I think that's because we have social media and parents are you know seeing these amazing images of these perfect babies and Yes. which we know is not true, of course, feeling like, oh, I ought to be going to that class and this class and doing all of these things. So there's definitely that pressure for parents. Um, but like you say, uh, you know, you can just Google everything these days um, with this sometimes uh, not so helpful information that's at their fingertips, which I think can be can be more damaging or doing more yeah. harm than good. And, and good point, re social media. You know, some of the images that are projected, you know, on social media channels must be pretty overwhelming. I'd say particularly for younger mums who haven't sort of got the filter on in the same way as maybe, you know, older mums. Um, yes. Where they are looking, you know, to these platforms for how the how-to and how should it look and how should I feel. So, yes. you know, where their feelings are kind of governed by, you know, yes. influences and people that look like they've got perfect lives. So that's that technology conversation Um sort of coming in there and I'd imagine you'd, you'd encounter that a little oh, bit yourself. absolutely. Yeah, something I feel quite strongly about because, you know, like you say, we have these social media influencers that post pictures of their, you know, perfectly sleepy babies and everything's matching. There's filters. It all looks very pretty. You know, who, who does post a picture of themselves with their hair all messy, no makeup on, vomit down their tops? you know, feeling utterly helpless and tearful. We don't see those pictures. All we mm. see on our feed are these beautiful images um, of happy mum, coffee in hand, baby at the breast. And we know that that's not reality. You know, that picture was taken um, five, you know, for five seconds. And then a minute later, that baby's probably vomited and the mum's, you know, put her coffee cup down. Um, mm. and, and the filter's not there. And I just think it, it's, it's it, you know, it's not great for it's a not mom. life. It's not life. It's not no. life. It's not life so, at so all. So where, where do people go if they want, you know, good source material to be reading and educating themselves? Have you got a couple of good sources where you, you know, look, look, uh, look out for, for young mums where they might go to or mums of any age that they just need information? What's reliable out there? Yes, well, I do write a lot of blogs, so I have a, um, a lot of blogs on my website, um, which is for you know, useful information for parents. Um, I think some there are some good um, parenting forums, like groups that you can join and you can be open and honest. And the, one of the good things about groups these days is you can now ask anonymously. So if, you do, if you've got a question that's quite emotive or you don't want to put yourself out there, then those kind of forums are great um, for parents to access. I'm actually a sleep advisor for the Sleep Store. The Sleep Store is the, um, I guess, the biggest retailer of sleep products in okay. New Zealand. So I'm an advisor in their toddler group because I do specialise in um, advising parents with toddler sleep issues. And so there you'll get, you know, quite open, honest 
advice um, and there's lots of useful information there. So that would be what I do recommend parents as a go-to for some free advice and wanting to, um, yeah, some balance advice, shall I More say. Infer- yeah, excellent. I mean, that's great. Yes. It's, it's really nice to be able to kind of provide that steer for our listeners. Um, and to round off our chat, uh, well, firstly, how would people get in touch with you? What would be the best way? So best way is to contact me through my website. So there'll be a um, form on there that you can just complete outlining your um, baby's or your toddler's current sleep scenario and yeah, what kind of support you need, but all just pick up the phone um, and give me a call and um, I'd be there yeah, to help and just have a check, check out my reviews and see um, all the other families that I've helped over the years. And just to give you an idea of kind of, yeah, the, the service and the support I offer. Well, your reviews are glowing. I've had a look at them and, and a lot of families talk about how much clarity you bring to difficult situations, which I just think is an amazing endorsement, actually. Uh, just to round off our chat, I just wanted to ask, you know, with 2022, the way it's shaped up at the moment, it's got its challenges, certainly for us here in New Zealand and around the world. Some of the some of the issues are very much the same with, with the pandemic. And I have enjoyed uh, today just some insights that you shared around some of the change-ups and change-outs that you know, families are facing with the pandemic, with the balance of, of work and life and the, the bleed into the home, um, people starting to think about traveling yes. now on airplanes and how do they manage infancy sleep uh, during, the, so people being more mobilized and on the move. Uh, I mean, with 2022 sort of underway and we're just about to finish our first quarter, what are you looking forward to the most this year? Have you got any sort of personal goals or aspirations oh. on the boil? Yes. Well, one of my first personal goals is I want to go back to the UK and see my mum. Um, she's going to be 82 this year. So that's my first goal. Um, so to, to go and see her. But um, I'm really looking forward to getting back out in the community and running some workshops. It's been nearly two years since I've done a face-to-face workshop. I do them via Zoom or do webinars, but there's nothing like getting in front of people, um, picking up on those feelings and, and also um getting back to doing the baby show. So the baby show has been cancelled probably five times now. Um, and I'm a guest speaker at the baby show every year and love mm. sharing my knowledge with, with parents and exhibiting there as well and just connecting with people. So I'm hoping this year is all about opening up and having the freedoms to meet people more face-to-face and doing those workshops, which I love. I love sharing my, my I guess, experience and face-to-face mm. with people. Yeah, and look, I think that's probably going to happen. I think things are looking like, you know, that they are sort of open and moving and certainly I think the way that New Zealand's looking, that should sort of fall into place. But I do know events are capped at the moment, so that's going to make it probably the biggest challenge for you. Uh, So look, I just wanted to say a huge thank you. I've I've really enjoyed talking with you today and I've learnt a lot and uh, kind of I've sort of gone back into time and... uh, been able to sort of re- rethink the way that I parented um, my kids and sort of dealt with some of their sleep issues. And I'm sure that it will be really insightful for our listeners too. So just wishing you a happy, healthy, safe, productive year ahead. Thank you. It's been a ple- it's been lovely chatting to you and sharing it's been my, lovely. Yeah, my story. It's been a great conversation and I think, you know, pretty timely during some of these challenging times. So thanks again. Thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation and stay tuned for more episodes. Please rate, review and subscribe. Check out the show notes if you'd like to contact this episode's interviewee. At Source Podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.